My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with David Diamond and David Ng. Despite the fact that the vast majority of what we encounter doesn't do this and doesn't really try, the arts and theatre are quite capable of being transformative in a sense that's meaningfully relevant to efforts to create social change. Vancouver's Theatre for Living, known from its founding until the last year or two as Headlines Theatre, aims to do exactly that, though its model for doing so has shifted quite a bit over the years. It has evolved from its beginnings in the early 1980s among an ad hoc group of actors doing very agitprop-style pieces, to work firmly in the tradition of Augusto Boal's Theatre of the Oppressed, and into a more politically flexible and nuanced adaptation of that approach that company co-founder Diamond calls Theatre for Living. Its current work includes a range of workshops as well as major productions, the latter category most recently including a piece called Maladjusted, which focuses on people's struggles with the mental health system and which is set to tour in British Columbia and Alberta starting in late January 2015. Diamond, who is currently the company's artistic and managing director, and Ng, who is its outreach coordinator, talk with me about the company's history, its philosophy, and its unique approach to developing and mounting transformational productions. We spoke by Skype from Vancouver. I'm David Ng. I'm the outreach coordinator for Theatre for Living. I started in May. It's been great. And I'm David Diamond. I'm the artistic director of the company and one of the co-founders. So it's been 34 years now, coming up in January. The company was known for many years, 31, 32 years, as Headlines Theatre. Most people will know the company as that. The name change happened about a year, year and a half ago. Because over time, the work had really evolved the company was begun with the idea of exposing the headlines, hence Headlines Theatre. That's something people do on their cell phones and YouTube now. And over time, the work really evolved into more of a dialogue creation vehicle as opposed to a headlines exposing vehicle. I came out with a book four or five years ago called Theatre for Living, the Art and Science of Community-Based Dialogue. And it kind of made sense now to just have the name be what the work is. In 1980, 81, a number of people came together. We were actors, writers, directors, and we were frustrated with the kind of work we were being asked to do. We're all working in the professional theater. And we just wanted to do something that was about something real, that had a political conscience. And we all had housing problems at the time, so we made a play about organizing for affordable housing called Bye Bye Vancouver. B-U-Y is in purchase. And so Bye Bye Vancouver was agitprop, you know, it named politicians' names, it wanted resignations, it was funny, it got rewritten every day based on what was happening in the news. 
it played in a different place every day, so you really had to work to find it. And it was this massive hit. It took us completely by surprise. That led to a video documentary directed by Nettie Wilde, who is a member of the company and has become a very well-known documentary filmmaker in Canada. And so we made Right to Fight, which was also about organizing for affordable housing and use aspects of the play in the documentary. And that led to a phone call from Project Plowshares, which was a church-based disarmament group. They'd been looking at what we were doing and wanted to know if we would make a play on disarmament. And that led to a two-year-long project that toured nationally called Under the Gun, which was really about Canadian involvement in militarism. And it just never stopped. Really, we, we didn't know we were starting a theater company. We just wanted to do something relevant. But it really fulfilled a need. After Under the Gun, so 1984, I'd become the guy who was doing the tour booking, raising the money, that sort of stuff, producing, and also then being involved in the writing and the performing of the plays. But the producing meant that decisions were being made on a daily basis that really affected what the work was going to be. And then I was going back to a collective once a month. And the collective, you know, good friends were going, oh, this is a nice idea, but what about this? And I'd go, you know, I've had to make decisions because... <laughs> This is really hard, this kind of process. And I asked for one of two things. I said, either the collective needs to come back together and we all need to do this work or I need decision-making power. And people didn't want to do the office work. And so they said, take it, go ahead. So that took me by surprise. And some invitations came to go to Europe and visit different political theater companies because I had a question inside me uh, we'd been very good at making theater for people and about them and then kind of pretending we were them and then making plays that told them how to solve the problems. And I had questions about how we could do it with them, not at them and on their behalf. And so I thought I could go to Europe and answer some of these questions for myself. And before leaving, I picked up this book by this guy I'd never heard of, Paolo Freire. The book was Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I had no idea what I was picking up. I just wanted something to read. And that book blew my mind. It basically was answering all those questions that I had. And I got to Europe and was at a theater festival and encountered the work of another Brazilian who I'd never heard of, Augusto Boal, and his Theater of the Oppressed, which had grown out of, out of Freire's work. There I was sitting in this audience and going, wow, that work is about the very thing I'm reading about. Boal had been tortured in Brazil and was now living in Paris. The magic of Europe, he was offering a skills-sharing workshop in 10 days or two weeks. Off I went to Paris, and Boal and I hit it off. We became friends, and meeting him and encountering his work affected my work very deeply. And so I came back here, and by 1986 started doing Theater of the Oppressed work. But then by around 92, lots of invitations were coming to do Theater of the Oppressed work, in, in particular from Canadian First Nations communities. And they really liked what the work was, but they sometimes did not like what it did inside their communities, meaning it was operating from a very strict, mechanistic model of oppressor and oppressed. And they were dealing with 
issues that were a legacy of residential school and addiction and violence in their communities and the targeting of the oppressor in their community as someone who needed to be locked up and have the key thrown away or in the plays, somebody who needed to be defeated somehow just wasn't helping them. They had a request for me and that was to make a play on issues of family violence that while it would not condone the violence, would not demonize the abuser. This was very challenging for me at that point in my life. I was very invested for various reasons, some of them personal, in there being monsters in the world. It also made my politics much easier to navigate. I knew who the enemy was, and it was them. But the First Nations communities were right, and we made this very powerful play called Out of the Silence in 92 about family violence issues that while it didn't condone the abuse, had compassion for the abuser. And if people understood the struggle of the abuser and the crisis that that person was in that was leading to these terrible actions, they could replace that person and try to break the cycles of violence. That play changed thousands of people's lives. I know that's true. And it led me down a path of really reevaluating that model, that mechanistic model that creates us and them. Where do the great oppressors of the world come from? They don't come from outer space. Communities grow them. And so the way I work over time really had to change. No longer theater the oppressed. It became theater for living. Before we get into exploring some of the more contemporary projects that the theater has engaged in, Maybe both of you could talk a little bit about the philosophy underlying this approach to theater, about why is it significant that it's participatory rather than this division between audience and performers, and what does that do? Why is that an effective way of engaging people in issues? I think one of the most important aspects of any artistic practice is that it is somehow transformational that the viewer experiences the art and is transformed somehow by it. One of the reasons art does that is because we humans, we don't think in words. We think in pictures, and art is imagistic. It's a symbolic language, and so it can be very transformational. The nature of this work is that it asks questions real questions, not fake questions. By that I mean questions we really don't have the answers to. And so the work isn't educational. It isn't, here's a message we want to give you and here's what we want you to go do. It is really dialogic. We actually really don't know what to do. And so then when you have the ability then to enter into the aesthetic space of the theater where it's safe you can experiment. It is actually about image. There's a lot of symbolism going on. And rehearse ways to make life safer, healthier, not just for you, but with the people around you at a local level, at a global level. The transformational power of that, because it's embodied. It's not just sitting back and intellectualizing something. It's actually embodied, it is extremely powerful. I think the theater has the power to transform the world and that this does that at a deeper level than the distanced kind of approach where we artists are on the stage 
and you non-artists sit and watch. Augusta Boal, the founder of the Three Year Press, said this over and over again. We are all artists. I think David pretty much covered it. I mean, the thing that really this theater work makes me think about is it's really putting real stories on the stage and dealing with real life things. And as David said, it's not intellectualizing it. It's actually working with those issues on the stage, which is why it's so powerful. For example, for Maladjusted, this play that we're touring created and performed by mental health patients and caregivers, the process that Theatre for Living engages to create a main stage production is actually engaging with people that are living the issues. We don't exactly have a writer that will write the play and then we'll have actors act the parts. We actually go through a process where we recruit people living the issues. They go through a workshop process to create the stories. There really is no script, if you will. And that's how the play creation gets created. I think that's really, really important in terms of this work. So pen doesn't go to paper. No, in the end, a script exists, Mm. but it's never been written down. It's very much kind of oral history time. (laughs) And so the play exists inside the creators. And it is performed the same every night, the presentational part. And it's word perfect. And it's highly produced in a main stage project. And so, you know, it has to be the same because in a 30-minute play, there might be 150 cues attached to that. The living the issues is important on a couple different levels. The type of form theater that Maladjusted is, for example, during the form portion where the audience is invited to stop the play at any time and offer interventions or solutions, They'll be interacting, essentially improv, if you will, with the actors on stage. And in order for a dialogue about mental health to happen, it can't be an actor acting the issue. It really comes from the lived experiences of the people on stage. Forum theatre is one of the most challenging forms of theatre that there is. And that's because when the audience starts to intervene, it is knocked, not the actor's job to manipulate the improvisation so it has a happy ending or a nice arc or that the audience learns X, Y, or Z. It is the actor's job to, from their own knowledge about the issues, tell the truth. And if that's really messy and awful, then that's what it is. And it's where we learn, have the deepest insights in that kind of territory. You know, my job is to create a space where it's safe enough to do that because big, big things happen in that kind of an environment. So walk me through the process from the initial idea of, okay, we want to do a production that tackles such and such an issue to having the final polished production. Well, it takes about a year. (laughs) You know, sometimes an invitation comes. So when we did Meth, a piece created and performed by ex-meth addicts and their family members, there were a group of elders in the Stalo Nation up the Fraser Valley who asked us to come into a meeting, them and some of the chiefs, and asked for the project. And that turned into a big, big thing that toured Western Canada. The idea for Maladjusted came out of our interrelationship with Vancouver Coastal Health here over many years, 
and coming in contact with so many people that were struggling with issues of the mechanization of the system, both patients and caregivers, that this became an obvious thing to do. But before embarking on anything, we consult in various ways with different members of the community to see if people think it's a good idea. And if they think it's a good idea, then we get people to write us letters expressing that it's a good idea and why they think it's a good idea and use those letters to help us fundraise. In the climate today, it takes longer and longer and longer to raise enough money. Projects are expensive because everybody gets paid above union wages. And like in a community workshop, there's maybe 30 people in the room. Everybody's getting fed really healthy food, for instance. So the costs are high, so we're always raising money. So we'll put word out that maladjusted, say, is happening through, you know, we're attached to 100, 150 different kinds of agencies. And so they will put word out for us through their networks. And for maladjusted, 191 applications came in from people who wanted to be directly involved in the creation and the performance of the play. So we had to go through all of those. We can't interview all these people. We have to kind of vet them. And so we get it down for maladjusted. We did 44 one-hour-long interviews in three days. And we're looking for as much diversity as we can. Diversity of origin, of class, of race, of orientation, of gender. And if you want to be in the play, and they all do, then you're going to do some improvising with me in that interview. I'm not looking for the best performers. I'm looking for people who will really engage at a deep level, who, you know, and, and we set this up so it could be safe, but if I start to push at them, they'll push me back. Out of those 44 interviews, we get 20 workshop participants, including the cast. And so we're casting the play before the workshop ever starts. And so everybody who comes in knows what their role is going to be. And so in that first week with lots of people in the room, we're using different theater games and exercises to explore their own experiences of struggling with the mechanization of the mental health system. And we have mental health patients and we have caregivers in the room. And there is a full-time support person, a mental health counselor in the room because all kinds of stuff comes up. And we make it through that week, and the week is just to till the soil out of which the play is going to grow. It is not to create content. We've also, of course, hired a professional production team, set designer, costumes, lights, video, sound, whatever. And they're coming in and out of that process all the time. And so then the workshop finishes, and then the cast, stage manager, and I are around a table for a couple of days starting off with, boy, was that ever intense, and then talking about what things have to happen inside the play that these six people can actually portray to honor the things that came up inside that workshop. So not what issues do we have to cover. That's not the list we're making. That is death. That turns the play into this shopping list of issues that the play has to cover. What we're looking for is what actions have to happen. And those actions can be symbolic. Somebody stands at a precipice is an action that came up. And so you gather these and then you start improvising and you start going, well, what does that mean? 
somebody stands at a precipice. Who's experienced that? Well, one of the actors goes, oh, I have. Well, can you show us? What was it like? And you start seeing scenes that grow out of people's lived experiences that, you know, the cast is who they are. They're playing characters that we know, that they know very well. And so we're not putting any one person's story on the stage. We're not making a documentary theater. We're taking these experiences and turning them into a much larger fiction that tells the truth and that asks real questions. And so as you start to do that, you're working kind of in a very organic way, like making a quilt sort of. A narrative starts to make itself visible. So nobody's writing a play that goes from A, B, C, D, E. It's a very nonlinear process. And eventually, if you trust it, a narrative starts to appear. And scenes are being reorganized, etc., because you're trying to make the best art you can. And you're working in larger images as well. And then you start honing it. Once you've got the roughness of it, you really start working the scenes to make the best art that you can. And designers get involved. And then you have an opening night. (laughs) And you have a play. I can tell you a little bit about the tour booking process. Part of my role is to basically book the tour. It's a very important process that we go through to book the tour. While we do the majority of the fundraising, we ask community partners if they're interested in having us come to contribute to a small bit of our costs. So the process has really been about partnering with different organizations who are inviting us to come to the community. We're hoping that communities will use Maladjusted as a platform to dialogue about mental health issues because it's interactive. Every night, every performance is going to be quite different. And we're really hoping that community partners can use the play to dialogue about humanizing mental health. One of the things within the tour booking methodology is we're hoping for as many collaborations as possible, including between First Nations and non-First Nations organizations. What's been interesting is, for example, there is a community that I've been talking to that the non-First Nations mental health organizations and the First Nations mental health organizations just because of the way that they're funded, operate quite separately. But with Maladjusted, it's a platform for them to actually work together. And so those collaborations are really a part of, I think, the work. It's not just about the dialogue that happens that evening, but the relationships that get built in the community, but also the relationships that are built with us as the theatre company as well. We also embody those relationship-building things that we are intend in communities. Tell me about how audiences respond when it's working to this kind of theater. I think in the digital world in which we live, people are actually very hungry, even when they don't know it, for an embodied experience, to get into space where they can look each other in the eye. And so this play, uh, how can I say this? It's me who comes out after the play to start to facilitate the interactive event with the audience. And so they've just had this very intense experience. And people are crying. They're in a very emotional state, not just as individuals, but as a living community. 
and I come out and it's important to start them from a very gentle place. And I explain to them what we're going to do now, that we're going to perform the play again, and if they understand the struggle that the characters are engaged in, and they have an idea about how to humanize healthcare, they're going to yell, stop, the play's going to stop, they're going to take the place of the character who struggle it as they understand, and try their idea to humanize care. And you can see them, they're going, what? We're going to do what? No, we're not. <laughs> not today, we're not. And there's jokes to make about that, because I know, of course, that we will. And then it starts. And there's a kind of relief in the room over that. When I say that, I don't mean that people are just happy somebody got up and did something, but that we're actually going to get a chance to speak theater. Keep in mind that art is a primal language. It is a language that belongs to all of humanity, not only those people that get to stand in the light. And so when we start to speak theater, not just with our voices, but also with our bodies, lots of wonderful things happen. And you can feel it in the room. I get approached by people all the time. I really mean this. I travel a lot, and so I'll be buying groceries somewhere, and somebody will come up to me and go, you did that play in like, you know, 20 years ago that came into my community. I want you to know that play changed our family. I hear this a lot. It's a tremendous privilege to be doing work that does that, both as an artist and as an activist. That isn't to say that it isn't sometimes difficult to get audiences to come. Once they're in the door, they have a great time. But people are also kind of I think, frightened by the idea that it's going to be interactive. And so we work really hard to try to have people understand that nobody's going to get dragged onto the stage, for instance. It isn't that kind of interactive, that it is very safe space to be in. Audiences tend to be good. And the decision to work with local organizations is a powerful one, and it serves us well that way. And so it's not the theater company making an invitation from afar, we have collaborators everywhere we're going, who people in the community know who are making the invitation to come to the play. I like to stress, and it's always at the end of interviews like this, that I recognize that the process, because it's about real things, etc., sounds kind of heavy, but it's actually a lot of fun. People come, say, to Maladjusted, and it's about very important issues, but there's a lot of laughter in the event both because it's improvisational, because there's laughter of release, because uh, funny things happen. In fact, we can have a really good time together and explore issues that are of vital importance to us all. You have been listening to my interview with David Diamond and David Ng of Theatre for Living. To learn more about their work, go to headlinestheatre.com. That's headlinestheatre.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 